0: And welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. What a few weeks this has been for football managers. From Patrick Vieira getting the Chapel Crystal Palace, followed by Antonio Conte at Spurs. Julian Nagelsmann was next out the door at a high-profile club at Bayern Munich, opting to cut ties with the Bundesliga winner. The German was followed out the door by Brendan Rodgers at Leicester City, who relieved the Irish coach of his duties after four years in the dugout. However, Arguably, the most high-profile sacking of 2023 has been Graham Potter at Stamford Bridge in what has become quite an extraordinary situation in West London. Potter had been in charge since replacing Thomas Tuchel back in September and was handed hundreds of millions of pounds in January to try and turn the team's fortunes around. Unfortunately, results worsened in the league and now Potter has been handed his marching orders. As of recording this, Chelsea played their first game without Potter as former... Brighton captain Bruno Saltor took the reins at the bridge in a goalless draw with Liverpool. Nevertheless, the situation is still intriguing and in today's episode we will be discussing what went wrong tactically for Potter at Chelsea as well as things that need to change going forward. I'm your host Evan Scully and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin though, please make sure to rate the podcast, five stars hopefully. It's genuinely appreciated so, so much. We've been growing exponentially at the moment, and we are incredibly grateful for your continued support. So let's try and keep that going as we try and bring you our very best audio content. So now, without further ado, let's get into the episode by speaking to my co-host for the day. Kyle, welcome back to the TFA podcast. How have you been? Good, how are you, Adam? I'm doing well. I think we're doing a lot better than some of the Premier League managers, and managers in general that have been dismissed in recent weeks i said in the introduction that you have patrick vieira and you've rogers and you've nagelsman and you've you've uh, uh, of course graham potter as well and there's pretty sure there's one i'm missing out on but it's been a strange week there's been a lot of takes online obviously this podcast will be coming out a little bit later than most would have put the podcast out but i like to we, we, we don't just want to sit here, right? So I spoke to Car before the podcast started. I'm just going to level with the listeners. We don't want to sit here and just spout the 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 regular drivel where we say Graham Potter is out of his depth and he's tactically inept, I've seen as well online, and he's clueless and this and that, and all the jargon and the nonsense that comes with a manager losing their job. Managers lose their jobs all the time. Sometimes managers aren't the right fit in this podcast. We're not going to just debate. Was it a right fit? Was he out of his depth, quote unquote, or whatever people want to spell? We're gonna we're gonna look at things tactically. We're gonna look at what went wrong tactically. We're gonna look at the squad as well and see if they have the right players to be able to play Potter style of football that he wanted. If the fact that they have so many players has massively hindered him, you know, hint it, it has. And we're also gonna be looking at replacements. Especially, actually, I, I won't reveal the name yet. I'm sure, I'm sure you can guess. It's not, it's not nothing that hasn't been reported anyway. And we're going to be looking at how he, that manager, can fare tactically with this team. Kyle, were you surprised by the news of Graham Potter losing his job?
1: Honestly, no. I think it just it could I couldn't see it going any longer. Um, they just. I mean, their his record at Chelsea just wins and losses. It's terrible. Thirty eight point seven percent, I believe. One percent. It's. It's. I. I think it's the worst in the decade, and yeah. um, position in the table. Whatever you want to look at, it has been very poor, and they just can't seem to win games. Um, and I think at club like Chelsea, it was just whatever the owners wanted to say that it would back them anything. I. It, I just couldn't see it keep going, and I think. Mm. It was the fact that week in, week in and week out, there was no prog- progress. Um, it, it was it was inev- 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 inevitable to get to a point like this. Um, yeah. I wasn't surprised at the second, um, but I, I do feel for him. I think the situation was never in his favor.
0: Well, it got worse, didn't it? Because as you said, you rightly said, there was no progress. It was actually digression. I mean, he started his mm-hmm. first nine games. They were unbeaten. They scored 16 goals and only conceded four. And lately, they just couldn't buy a win in those last couple of games. I mean, they beat. They had a before the international break. They had a couple of games where they went on a bit of a nice run. They beat Leicester away from home. But who doesn't? They beat Borussia Dortmund, coming back from one nil down in the first legs. So happy days! They drew to the next round of the Champions League. But then, just before the international break came, they drew to Everton. From was it a late goal? I'm pretty sure Everton scored. I can't remember who scored it. And then the problem started. They come, they give part of the benefit of the doubt. There wasn't that much noise about that draw against Everton because they had decent results before mm-hmm. that. Then, after, of course, the international break comes or it finishes, and Aston Villa beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, which is just for all Aston Villa's, for all they're an excellent team under Unai Emery, it's mm-hmm. not really acceptable to lose a home 2 0 to a side like Aston Villa, yeah. respectively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna shoot a little bit of a not a hot take, I suppose, but I was personally surprised that Potter actually got sacked. Not because, I mean, in any other situation, yes, especially mm-hmm. under the the Roman Abramovich era, he, Potter would have been gone a long time ago. He probably wasn't wouldn't have been put in charge. But Todd Bowley said it was a new dawn, and he was going to give Potter time. Potter was his guy. He gave him several years of a contract. He spent there. I won't swear on the podcast, but it's just an obscene amount of money that we spent more money on the squad than most countries would spend on certain sectors like health or the military, which is absolutely bizarre. I mean, and then and then he ended up sacking him. And it's also the stranger that they sacked Thomas Tuchel then because you think he's a Champions League winning manager. Finished, I think, fourth in his fourth season, I believe. Won the Champions League as well. I think maybe third or fourth, fourth season. Won the Champions League last season. They finished third. Sacked this season by the start of September. And a park gets put in charge, is given five, six months. Can turn it around. Results are, uh, you know, as I said, first nine games, pretty good results. 16 goals scored, four conceded. And then things go west pretty quickly. Kyle... Before we talk about his tactics at Chelsea, talk to me about his time at Brighton, because Potter earned a name for himself as somewhat of a a Twitter darling. Is that is that an insult? I feel like maybe it's an insult, but he, he earned a lot of praise online from people, especially including us at TFA. I mean, we, we, we yeah. quite like Potter and I personally like Potter. He played some nice football. Before we talk about the the downsides, and obviously you know what I'm gonna load to here, we'll talk about Talk to me about the tactics at Brighton because he was a bit of a tactical yeah. chameleon. Yeah.
1: I think I think when you have those sort of clubs um that are extremely well structured and have a perfect structure in place. Um Ajax, some of their players leaving, they might not do as well outside. Little in France. Um you had Pepe, you had a couple of players leaving, might not done so well outside. I think with managers it can be the same thing. Um Brighton was a perfect storm. Um mm-hmm. the ownership uh, Tony Bloom is an unbelievable owner. Um and it was just the, the the organization from top down it was everybody was in on what they were doing. Um recruitment was perfect and Graham Potter it was brilliant. He's a brilliant tactician. He's brilliant at figuring out systems, being flexible, mm-hmm. getting the best out of players. I mean Charles Sard was unbelievable under him. Um and then with the recruitment he wanted, the style of players he wanted in each each sector of the pitch, and with the time it went on, it was just – it was a very good project overall beyond just a manager. And I think that suited him perfectly. And with the whole Twitter thing, it was a perfect storm because that's when XG really started blowing up. Yeah. This new tactical world on Twitter, um, it, it started blowing up, and he was really – it was a really tactically complex. There you was know, lots of stuff to analyze. Um, the team worked well. It was just everything was perfect. And sometimes we have to see beyond that. We can't just go all with all the respect to him. It's just not all his work. It's it's mm. the project. It's everything that we may make it a fairy tale. When obviously it's perfect, but obviously there's so many factors that go into it. So I think, yeah. And, but at at Brighton, he was just. Tactically very good. Um, love to adapt to the opponents, adapt the structure. It was very flexible. Um, yeah, it, it's been oils well, it last year, the most recent. But you can just remember how many variations and all the articles would come out about all well, masterclass and Potter and everything. It was mm-hmm. just it worked out perfectly. And um, at Chelsea, you compare the two structures, the two situations, the two projects, and it's nowhere near each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think his style of play is just one that requires a lot of lining, I I guess. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. Well, I have a quote, and I love a quote on this podcast. We're talking about it was when Graham Potter was at Brighton. And you're right. He, uh, he used so many. There was no, I mean, okay, you can say, I suppose that the set formation they used was a three-two-five. was kind of mainly what they used or... 3-5 or three four three, whatever you want to call it. it. doesn't matter. But at Brighton, I believe, this quote came from, Graham Potter said about formations. Now, formations being irrelevant is a hill I'll die on forever, especially in the modern game. It's something I've debated before, something we've been debated, uh, Kyle, you and I, and Brian, on the podcast before about whether formations are actually relevant in the modern game. Potter said, we don't really see the formation as the end goal. The team needs to look consistent regardless of the formation. Then it's about personnel. How you want to attack the opponent, how you want to defend the opponent. At Brighton, he used a plethora of formations. I mean, from 43-1 to 3 5 to 3-5-2 regardless. Why is that so difficult to play against in your in your thoughts, Kyle? Is it like because you don't know the personnel you're going to be coming up against, he's constantly changing the personnel, he's constantly changing the spaces they're going to be on the pitch. Why is it so difficult to defend against? And if you're a manager and you're analysing the game or, the, you know, you're coming up against Brighton, you're analysing you're thinking, my yeah. God, I have no idea what he's going to do.
1: I think it's it's it makes it incredibly difficult because as a manager, one, you want to, obviously the analysis you want to take for yourself and how you're going to prepare for the game. Um, For that, you need to know roughly how they're where players will be how they're going to structure um tendencies and movements and patterns and behavior um when they're so flexible and uh, and and you know they're not only going to adapt to your game they're going to adapt throughout the game so it's it makes it very difficult for the manager to prepare and and kind of develop his own game plan but also the second point of analysis is related to the players so the players know who's going to be where um in our structure, the right wing. What's what's his task going to be out of possession? Who's he going to have to be around? Everything like that. It's also difficult relating it to the players. So it's just it, it's 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 completely unpredictable and and mm-hmm. um it's very very difficult to play against. Um, I think. However, I think the constant change and the struggle to find a formation was also at the heart of his downfall at Chelsea.
0: Um, yeah. Well, we'll discuss that now shortly. And actually, there were there, there were a lot of patterns from his time at Brighton and his time at Chelsea. The, I think one I noticed as well was usually in the 3-2-5, if you want to call that the formation in possession. I don't really like labeling formations in possession, but just to give the listeners a kind of... guide, rough guide. A, a guide of what I'm talking about. It was a 3-2-5, you could double pivot. Your back three, obviously, and then you'd have your wing-backs holding the width in your tree in front, of course. Usually, I believe it was on the right with Pascal Gross, who isn't a wing-back.
1: Mm-hmm. He's a
0: central midfielder, but he would play as a wing-back. And it looked strange. It was a wise Pascal Gross playing as wing-back, but it was never really like that, because he'd always usually come in-field yeah. or something, or and then the right central defender would step up and maybe overlap. And at Chelsea, you see the same. It was mm-hmm. more so on the... now. it was on the right or the left, depending on who was available. So if it was... I mean I remember the game again the first
1: couple was Sterling as I said. Sterling, yeah.
0: That was it as well. I was gonna say it was his fourth game, I believe, against uh Salzburg, mm-hmm. I think. Salzburg, yeah. Yeah, and Sterling was a wing back, and people were thinking, why is it it's, it's Sterling's not a wing back though. like he he'd come inside. He'll be able to take the winger on one v one, and then you've got a overlap on the left, and it creates a weird shape in possession. But whatever, on the, the right, the... right and... Mm-hmm. yeah. And I was going to say on the right, then obviously Loftus Cheek kind of did the Pascal Gross role. He'd come inside, and then you have the right. Reese James could could play right centre half. But the problem was as well, injured for so much of the season. Yeah. Uh, also, before we move on, if, if you can hear my dog on this podcast, I'm so sorry. He's been extremely noisy today and nothing I can do. I've tried to stop him, but he's, he'll do what he wants. So apologies to listeners. Anyway, one of the things, Kyle, that I suppose, I mean, I, I just looked at the stats in front of me, and it's, it's, it, it, it's absolutely horrendous. Something that transferred over or translated from his time at Brighton to his time at Chelsea that everyone knows, of course, is XG, and expected goals and the underperformance of XG. I mean, when he was at Brighton, XG, as you said, kind of the XG revolution happened then, but it seems like to just be so, centered around Graham Potter was almost like the G and XG stand for Graham. It was bizarre. So let's look at his. So last season, actually, I want to talk about last season with Tom Stuchel. Uh fifty-five goals from open play in the Premier League, fifty-seven point three two XG. So it's not not too bad. In all competitions, that was fifty-six goals. And an XG of sixty, I believe, or something along that line. Sorry, no, yeah, sorry, that doesn't include the Champions League though. Um, the underperform, there's still an underperformance there, but it's not, it's not too bad. It's possible this season. You ready? Chelsea mm. XG twenty nine goals from open play during Graham Potter's time in charge, an XG of forty six point nine two, which is an underperformance by eighteen. About just under 18, about 17.92. That's, That's unbelievable. There was a thread on Twitter. I don't remember the guy's name. I'm so so sorry. He wrote about Potter City teams are always. It's it's a trend that they don't score chances. But I feel like it's been. It's just, it, the fact that it happened at Brighton over several seasons, and now it happens at Chelsea. It doesn't really seem like a coincidence anymore. He argued that they create the wrong type of chances. What do you think is down to the underperformance of XG with Potter's teams? Before we talk about Chelsea solely, because there's a big reason why Chelsea did as well, mm-hmm. but talk about Potter's teams in general. Did they create the the wrong type of chances, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think
1: it's such a weird one because the whole idea behind XG is that it's not meant to be looked at in a specific game, although you can, is that in the long term, it will average out. And I, I think to some extent... It did at Brighton because I remember there was one season I forget forget which one that um they finished I believe it was like one or two spots out of relegation and if you looked at expected points they were like four f- four or fifth um and then the next season they were like up there I think they finished quite higher on the high much higher on the table um but it's meant to average out and at Chelsea it just hasn't and and you just have to wonder why um I think. I mean, he gave an interview, I think it was the other week, where he just goes, if you look at the XG, and I think as a manager, you can say that publicly. Yeah. Um, I,
0: I actually, just, just sorry not to interrupt you on that, but just speaking at that point before I forget, uh, it, he was 100% right in what he said, because yeah. John McGinn's yeah. chance was a low XG chance, but yeah. you got to read the room as a manager in the yeah. situation. I think his fans do not want to hear that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and then I think that gave us a little bit of insight into his approach. I think on his day-to-day work um the way he evaluates performance and the, the the development of the project tactically is i think actually plays a key factor in that and while that's good and that should be the case you just kind of have to stay take a step back and look beyond that because there's so much more and i think that uh creating the wrong sort of chances is is a very good um thing to get at and it's quite complex but in I think you just have to speak about Chelsea as well because the the kind of players they have. Um... Well, they
0: loaned Lukaku out to Inter yeah. Internazionale, obviously, and while Lukaku has his flaws, yeah, he's yeah, still by far the best hand of forward they had in the squad. Yeah, what did you make of that? And also, I mean, I, no. to talk, we'll talk about Lukaku for and I know he wanted actually, I know he wanted to leave, but talk about chelsea center forward as a whole because they did bring in obama he chose to leave him out of the squad in europe yeah i mean is is
1: i mean can you can you
0: blame him for that or do you yeah. like do you understand why uh
1: some some i do i obama i think uh, should have never been I, yeah there's a, a question which to answer in the first place i think chelsea this goes beyond Potter or even ownership. I mean, the past. I think since Jogba, what has been going on with Morata? How many strikers have come in and just over in there, How many have just come in and just looked like a shell of themselves? It's just very weird. But yeah, um, I think it's it's a weird one because they don't have. I mean, you can't when you when you looking at the squad, you can't just loan out Lukaku, given the talent talent he is, um if if you loan them out. But then you sack the manager a couple of months, well, weeks later, it kind of shows like, well, OK, let's say you loaned him out because he didn't fit in your system and maybe he didn't. You're going to bring a manager. You know, it's just there's no like consistency yeah. in the project. And one thing that I don't think I, I think we shouldn't forget is that when Chelsea were flying on their two show, was one thing that you would hear week in and week out was everyone scores goals it was something like 17 different players have scored this season. They would win, and you look at who scored, and it would just be like Reese Chambers, and, like yeah. and, and it would be like Tiago Silva, Brodier. And and it was... Tuchel was able to get the, the whole team to contribute to that. And I think... I'm not sure about to, or Potter's system, but it's just... It, I'm not entirely sure. And I think when you when you go approach it with, uh, we're going to create the best chances for our attacking players to finish. When you have Mudrik, Felix Havertz, who are unbelievable creators mm-hmm. and, and very good at exploiting space and making creating chances, are they the best at finishing chances? I think it's just, it's a really complex thing. And I think
0: it's very weird. Um, to, to, to did. Did the signings in January specifically, because when Potter came in, the summer transfer window had already closed. Tuchel was in charge Mm -hmm. for the summer transfer window. Now, whether the board tailored that towards Tuchel from the summer transfer window is a different debate, but we can only go off what we know. Potter was already in charge when the summer transfer window ended. He was in charge for January. Did the signings in January reflect the weaknesses within the squad and what needed to change because straight away when the window ended, they had spent more money than any team in any transfer mm-hmm. window in English mm-hmm. football, which is, for a January transfer window, is a bizarre stat statistic. Yeah, yeah. But they still didn't sign a, a no, they proper... Signed I mean, they signed they fan, of course, yeah, who's a really good player, but we're talking, you know, a, a good young I mean, prospect.
1: I mean... When you, when you have – it's a weird one. Fofana is definitely not the number nine you sign for, to, to solve your problems. Mm-hmm. I think the amount of attacking players but no wingers or, or so many wingers and yeah. no goal scorers, I think there were, it didn't seem to be a, a, a plan of any sort. I think with the money they spent, they could have easily gotten – you pay you can pick out the best 10 strikers in the world and they could have gotten at least mm-hmm. a couple of them mm-hmm. and th- there was no addressing that and I think like you said the Potter's um start was good um with Chelsea and I think that might have hidden that a little bit so they didn't think it was an emergency but it was just they did they didn't address the most significant problem which now is going I mean what was it? it was in February where they scored one goal um it's like it's 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 a clear pro- problem, and it's probably the biggest one in the squad, and it's been like that for a while. And the fact that they spent six hundred million pounds and did not address it is a joke. And 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 whether you can blame Potter for that, I'm not entirely sure, but um, yeah, it was just you've you can say Potter's out of his depth, you can say so many tactical problems, but when you simply don't do the basics, which is mm-hmm build a good squad even though you have 30 something players it's kind of shooting yourself in the foot
0: well yeah i mean there was a point in time where this is going to sound awful but there was a point in time where chelsea had less goals since november i believe it was at some point in february they had less goals since november than fred from manchester united who was a manchester united squad player at best um no disrespect to fred of course it, it, Seems like a nice guy, but Chelsea football club should not have less goals than Fred. Federico Rodriguez, absolutely bizarre. I do want to say though, the, I mean, yeah, you're right as well. Like, I don't want to disrespect a player like Mihailo Mudrik, who's who's who is a really good talent. But when you spend what was it 80 to 100 million on, on another winger when you could get a center forward for that, I find yeah, to be... Sterling. I, I. Sterling, Ziyech, they had Havertz can play there, Mason Mount, they brought in. He did spend a lot of money
1: in Sterling
0: just yeah. four months ago. Yeah, it's bizarre. And also, it, it, it seemed to be a bit out of character. Not for Chelsea, because Chelsea have always been a bit odd spenders. But mm-hmm. they also well, they brought Potter in. Didn't they bring in Dan Ashworth as well?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, yeah. They brought in a lot of Brighton's yeah. recruitment kind of staff to help them. That they, they clearly wanted to get Potter in. They wanted that direction that like like Brighton but a, a, yeah. a bigger Brighton Chelsea
1: logo. yeah yeah Brighton with the Chelsea logo and yeah it seemed they wanted to do that but at the end of the day the mudrick signing I think that exemplifies the whole strategy or lack of strategy because how did it come about Arsenal well Arsenal wanted
0: him yes and and
1: and it just seemed like if I could picture the meetings and i am obviously just way well, out of my league saying this saying this but I like could picture of the meetings, it would be the Brighton staff and Potter saying, with a super nice PowerPoint, we need this areas and this style of, with um the the striker needs to have these stats or whatever, and then Todd, Todd just listens and he goes right okay, well Arsenal with this player so I'm gonna buy him. <laughs> it, it seemed like even though they, they they done all the things the right things to build a team to to develop the Brighton project I guess you can call it, but it seemed like at the end of the day the decisions
0: were just very irrational and and yeah. Emo- not emotional, yeah. but... Yeah, it just... Yeah, the signings didn't quite make sense. What else did make... Before we actually... I, I want to talk about the overall squad in a moment, but mm-hmm. before it becomes... Before we kind of pass by it, I do want to discuss Tuchel. Now, there seems to be a bit of revisionism about Tuchel's time in charge of Chelsea. Champions mm-hmm. League winner, amazing. Yeah. People seem to forget as well they almost didn't make top four that season because they, while they did great for a long time under them towards the end of the season they really yeah. really started to curtail i believe they were losing to aston villa on the lot la- I have a memory of them losing to Aston Villa on the last day of the season I think they came back and won and they just clinched top four or else Leicester bottled it so they didn't get top four was Yeah, something along yeah. them lines the but it came down came reasons. down to the last game of the season and this again the be revisionism again Took to Chelsea the 2021 2022 season they were up there with Liverpool and Man City, Man City for the title for a couple of months, and then it ended up being a two horse race, and Chelsea eventually tailored off into third place, yeah. and they got top four in the end. But they got to the two cup finals, lost both.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it wasn't always perfect this season as well. They had a turbulent start to start the season. Now not as bad as we've seen in recent months, but they were still they weren't winning every game, yeah. and then two cup was sacked. In terms of like formations, I suppose, if we want to discuss that, it was similar, the appointments. Mm-hmm. But talk to me about what's different tactically mm-hmm. between the two managers. Because as I said to you, structurally, it was it was quite similar. 3 2 5 yeah. and, and yeah. Tuchel would do the same, we'd have to double pivot, very close knit with the back three quick passes going mm-hmm. behind. Although Tuchel did also experiment a lot with the 43 or a four, mm-hmm. it looked what looked to be a four one five at one point in time. Um, talk to me about what's different tactically between those two managers.
1: Yeah, I think both, like you said, had have, have a very similar shape. And so that kind of helps. The thing with Tuchel at Chelsea and I think Brighton or Potter had that at Brighton was the flexibility and the adaptations were very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't sort of like fluid and natural. They were very like methodical and like it's going to go from a one-two to a two-one and and Brighton love or Potter loved that at Brighton, um, there wasn't there was nothing of that sort. And at at Chelsea now, um, it seemed like he was it, it, other than rather than uh, adapting the formation, it was more he was struggling to find a formation and a system that worked. It was like me in FM when I'm just trying to find the right formation. I can't seem to. And I'm always changing. It's, just, um, yeah. It's it's it didn't seem like it was very methodical and. It was more seem like trying to, find the right, or trying to find the right solution. I think with the squad, when you add that many new players and there's the whole dynamic of training and how difficult it is with so many players. And when you add that many players at once for the manager to, to know in and out the quality of his players and how he's going to play well with him and how this is going to work well dynamically on that structure on the left side, it's very difficult for him to know that. So for him to come in and, and put a clear formation, a clear, not not formation, a clear structure mm-hmm. uh, with shape and tendencies and variations, it's very difficult. And I think he related to Tushman a bit in that he was adaptive and he was very flexible at Brighton. And there was, a, the the flexibility was there, but at Chelsea, it's just, it's very difficult for him to do that because to do that, you need to have a good idea of your players Of who can play where and he showed signs of it with lost his cheek cheek and trying to get him as a situational win back Mm -hmm. but it was just it never seemed to click on and and find um, because even when you speak about managing to have flexible you said it, flexible organizations and everything there's always a base kind of something they built from Chelsea never had that and I think it's very difficult when you have that many players and, and quickly they come in so quickly
0: well, one thing I noticed between the two of them, when especially when you look at the kind of the heat map between both managers during the time there, obviously Tuchel's was far more, uh, more difficult to gauge because there was, uh, I suppose he had been there a, a a much longer time, whereas it yeah. was easier to get the kind of a nice sample size where you can see exactly the areas they were trying to play. This season, anyway, again it was a smaller sample sample size for Tuchel, but. There was clearly more progression through the half spaces and I would classify that as the central area. So I classify the central areas myself as the central corridors and the two half spaces and then the wide areas that are our own kind of entities. So you have those three. There was more progression through the central areas, through the half spaces, because Tuchel at Chelsea, they played that box midfield. They did under Potter as well, but it was that box midfield. You have the double pivot and you have your two, whatever you want to call them, your two Your two tens, your wide playmakers, your free eights, whatever you want to call them, just a load of different names. But they'd have that box, they try play into those areas, they always did. And they, you know, with a double pivot, they'd stay really tight with the central defenders, quick passes, like kind of like Brighton do now, to a lesser extent, I suppose, though, but they always wanted to try and you know constantly use the double pivot, break the lines, quick passes, short passes. Under Potter, it was more I mean, they 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 played more passes per possession. I, I apologies. I can't remember the, the the statistic off the top of my head. They played more passes per possession. They were trying to play a lot down the sides as well. So there was a lot of what I'd call U shaped possession, whereas you just you used to say like wing back, yeah, back to the central defenders, out to the left wing, back up the line, and you back again. You can't break through. So you go back to the side. It was just constant, constant, constant. Yeah. There was a lack of central penetration and that means ultimately you're left having to cross the ball a lot from areas that lead to low percentage chances because i say this all the time people think crosses are a really high percentage chance of scoring they're one of the lowest and i don't mean low crosses it's like, it's like, 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 like cutbacks i'm talking no, yeah. like,
1: it takes something like 3% of crosses so yeah. and like goals it's yeah. it's ridiculous
0: yeah and also i'm talking about like aerial crosses here so it is yeah, even yeah. harder because Okay, if you want to talk across cross, like the Man City, the, the, you know, call Gundam on cutback specials, like, okay, yeah. like, it's a better chance of and especially when you have great players, but yeah. with a cross, it's just from the flank, lobbed into the box, yeah. and you have to head it. there's a million different variables, oh, stop it. And that. then, like, not only that, you have Havertz, Felix, yeah. in the box.
1: it's not, yeah. it's not, it, it's, it didn't, it's not idea. the personnel, but... It seemed I, Potter is a switched-on guy. I don't think he definitely knows that crosses aren't the best. It just seemed like yeah. a lack of just just solutions. Um, yeah, and I don't understand because you can't put that on the squad because when you have Enzo Fernandez, Kovacic, Felix, Havertz, um, Mason Mount playing through the the areas, the half spaces, um. It's, it's so weird because I believe Potter is more than good enough to, to develop a system where he can utilize that, but it, mm-hmm. it, they just really struggle to. And, and I don't yeah. think he can put down the personnel, maybe the way the personnel came about maybe,
0: but yeah. I agree. I think that's on him. I think a lot of the time there's a lot of people who just want to slay Potter for everything. There's a lot of people who want to defend them for everything. It's really important to note that he is still the manager of the team. He decides the style of play. He picks the first 11. What I do want to say as well, though, is moving on more to personnel again. There was times where, as we discussed, Potter wants to use those wing backs to come inside and then the, the, the defenders overlap, the centre-halves overlap, the wide central defenders, sorry, or fullbacks, if you want to call them as well, in the, in the back three. But then he'd have, say say he wanted to put Sterling on the left, come inside, and then you'd cool barley on the left as well. There was clearly a personnel issue when certain individuals weren't available. It's why Marco Cucurella was always picked and people were criticised yeah. and saying, why is he not playing well? Why is he being picked? Was like, okay, if you don't pick him, you put Kula Bali left central defence. Yeah. And you want to play staring as a wing-back or whoever you want to put as a wing-back and they come inside and then you put Kulabali overlapping, a right-foot central defender yeah. overlapping on the left who's not really that great with the ball. doesn't work. Same on the right. Reese James is out for a long periods of time. There's no Aspilicueta. You're kind of stuck in a situation where you can't really do the mannerisms you want to do within your team. But again, that's down to the that is down to the coach to it is make because sure you can't, it's it's it's
1: you can't have a, a way of playing independent of the players. And it's you need to be good enough to to I mean we're just taught I mean that's a pattern, right? The yeah, overlapping the wide area overlap yeah. you have to figure out other ways. You can't just be so dependent on that to, to where you don't have Coca. Or if you don't have to create, like, you still try to do that with players that aren't good enough. You, I, I can't be that. You can't be that universal in, in your approach. You need to be ad- that to the players. And whether that is changing the formation and, and the way of playing and where you're going to play through, you have to do that. You can't just be dependent on the, on the system. It has to be dependent on the players.
0: Well, when he came to Chelsea Force, he kind of stuck with the same formation that Tuchel was using, 3-4-2-1, if you want to call it, or 3-2-5. I'd probably call it more so because it spends more time looking like that. Then he changed a couple of months in to a 4-2-3-1, rather basic again. We talked about earlier going back to basics. It was going back to basics. There wasn't anything too fluid about it. It was really kind of your, your, your casual 4-2-3-1 where you put basic principles in place. Still didn't work. Chelsea still couldn't score. He switched back then to a back three towards the end of his time in charge, and it was it was too late. The, the kind of the damage had already been set in for for several months by then, especially since November onwards. But what I do want to discuss, Kaya, we talked about the players they brought in, the signings. The squad was, I believe, thirty one. Can you can you imagine putting yourself in the shoes of a manager? So say. Graham Potter sacked. Caio, you get a phone call saying you're going to be the next manager at Chelsea. You walk in to train in Cobham, right? You walk in, you see a beautiful pitch. It's gorgeous. The the sun is kind of shining through the clouds. It's a beautiful day. And there are 31 players all standing there waiting for you to take the session with your coaches. Like, what do you do? How stressful is that? Yeah, I think... There's so many dimensions to it. I think
1: the first and the obvious one is the training session individually. As a coach, you want to develop dr- set drills and sessions that one keep keep everybody engaged. There's no not much standing about um, that that you can utilize everyone. It is just very impossible to do that with 31 players, and they I've. I've read that at times they would just split them off into two, um, <sighs> different, two different sections or whatever. It's, it's like different. summer camp, but you got summer camp yeah. as a kid. It's, it's crazy. It's, but So obviously the logistics of a session become very difficult and that that that's the implication of how is the team going to progress tactically when you can't develop efe- efficient training sessions. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the individual development of the players and, and the collective one because how are they going to become familiar with each other? When they're playing with, like you can put Enzo in a in a drill with ten players, and those ten players might not might not even be in the squad. So it's yeah. like the players struggle to become familiar with each other and develop that natural the natural relation. And also individually, it's just very hard to develop when there's not much focus on on you individually. Um, it's just so many things around training the individual training session, the development of the players, the collective cohesion of the players, it all becomes so difficult in the long term. And I think that's maybe why we're going to see many, much pro- progress because behind the scenes, it was just a, a very difficult to implement anything. And then this is where we maybe can shy away a little from Potter and the, the shortcomings he had tactically and the lack of solutions he, he found that suited the players. Also, it's difficult to implement that when this is the scenario.
0: I mean, I can't imagine going into to training in the morning with your coaches and you sit around yeah. the table and you're discussing the session you're going to put on, the stress you would feel putting yeah. on a session designed for 30 players or in excess of that because you have young players as well. And I, I struggle to see how they're going to offload that, by the way, because many of them are on significant wages and they're not going to just want to leave. It's so. going to be like a, a, a fire sale in the summer at Chelsea. You could get Mesa Mountain for $5 million and all. It's going to be crazy. You're going to be able to pick up players for nothing. Because they know some, some of them,
1: and now some of them have what do you call it? Um, seven year contracts, so that yeah. helps.
0: Well, that's what they did. Obviously, they used the amortization to, to get around FFP, if you want to call it, to give players McConnell Mudrick's them over 80 to 100 million to give them, it. What was it, an eight year contract? Yeah, it will come back around, you know they what I mean? And then run, it, it, yeah, it breaks down then to like eight to 10 million a year, which isn't doesn't look that bad, but it's on an eight year contract. And, He's had a pretty woeful four season already, so it's kind of alarming. Yeah. But getting back to the training, yeah. I mean, and even just not regarding how things work out on the pitch and, and how stressful it would be to put the sessions on, you imagine psychologically, yeah, leaving. So, you put a squad of 18 out on a match day, you have your, your first 11, you have your seven substitutions, you still have 13 left over that aren't going to be picked, yeah, and they're unhappy because they're not even travelling footballers at the end of the day some of them I'm sure are happy to pick up a wage I'm sure there's some people that just don't care they're just happy to pick up a wage there are most I'd say I would say 99.9% of footballers want to play football you don't get you don't get to that point because
1: obviously it drives you to be in the squad to travel with the players and and there's the psychological it's it's it affects the confidence and the morale of the players mm-hmm And the cohesion, I think it's important because it's one thing when you're traveling with the same usual amount of people, uh, those moments in the hotel and the the airplane, you're able to connect with the players. The players are able to just – this is beyond football. It's just be friends with each other and be – like know how to interact with each other and everything like that. Mm -hmm. It's difficult when it's a different plane every week. It's like – it's – and I think – I don't think I've read anything about that, but I think you're, you're bound to see, like, clicks developing in the squad because players will... You have the old Portuguese ones, the the, the English ones. Mm-hmm. I think they're naturally going to stick with each other because it's so difficult to build, a, a, a like, nice cohesion in the squad. Um, it's just everything about it is... Everything about 31 players in the squad is terrible. There's, yeah. no, there's no good yeah. factor. There's no I good mean,
0: aspect. You have great players, but... Actually, I used the quote last week on a podcast with Stevie Grieve. He came on, and he said in a different podcast before, but I re-quoted him in this one. He said something something along the lines of "It's like a student going into Tesco, basically." Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is they just go in like n- nonsensically spend money on stuff yes. they don't need, yes. and then you know you've you've you're left with apologies to the listeners, you're left with crap everywhere at home and I think it's the same with Chelsea, I mean like the the term bloated squad is so relevant to Chelsea right now and they signed they have some really good players but a 31 squad of players, a lot of them probably don't want to be there, it's absolutely bizarre and then as well Miguel Delaney I'm not here to tell you what to think about Miguel Delaney but a report out saying, I believe it was with the Telegraph, I think he's with the Telegraph, sorry if that's incorrect, but he said that a lot of Chelsea players had to Google who Graham Potter was when he came to the club. Now, if you want to believe that or not, that's fine. Chances are, though, he's right, because, and I don't, people took it as a disrespect, a lot of them had never played in the Premier League before, and they're coming over, and they probably didn't know who Graham Potter was, so fine. Not every player. You 100% know. Andre Santos playing in and out of Vasco, <laughs> so,
1: Vasco in Brazil did not follow Graham Potter's... It's, it's just, and it's not like they bought <laughs> players from, like, similar areas. It's just all over the, the world that they want
0: yeah. players. And, like, people were saying, well, Potter had been in charge for three, four years at Brighton. Like, yeah, I'm sure, like, the Raheem Sterlings knew who he was. Yeah. But, like, yeah. someone like maybe a Kula Bali or, as you said, an Andre Santos, no chance. Like, yeah. why, why would they know who Graham Potter is? It's not a disrespect to Graham Potter. Yeah. I, and we I, forget that we
1: follow football week in, week out. <laughs> players are playing week in, week out. They're yeah. not going to be following... Um, yeah, I think the, the squad is a terrible problem. But assuming the ownership and the next manager can get around that, I think there's unbelievable quality there. And I think it's, it has potential
0: undoubtedly. Well, let's discuss then the next manager coming in. Well, at the start of the podcast, I didn't want to reveal the name too early. I'm sure it was pretty easy to guess what we're going to talk about. It's, it's, probably, it's literally the only name being linked to Chelsea at the minute, obviously, is recently dismissed by Munich coach Julian Nagelsmann, who is, he had he was dismissed from Bayern. Again, that would be a whole different debate of whether it was right or wrong. It was probably a bit more unfortunate than Potter, but there was a lot of issues with, I mean, there was reports coming out that he was skateboarding into the training centre and people didn't like that, which is just, I mean, it's kind of, it's a bit bit jarring to hear because it doesn't matter. Does it matter if he flies in? Does it matter if he if he you know comes in in a jetpack? Does it really matter to, to many people what his mode of transport is? But anyway, let's discuss his... Like, I mean, likely... The likelihood is that he will take over Chelsea. Mm-hmm. There are really no other names being linked to the club at the minute apart from one or two reports, but it's not nothing concrete. Julian Agusman seems set in stone to be the next Chelsea manager. Would you think that it would be sensible to put him in charge now because the Premier League season is over for them. You can just forget about it. Uh, but they are still in Europe. They play the champions, of course, Real Madrid, which is going to be an awfully difficult game. But would you put Nagasman in charge? Do you think leave it to Bruno Salto at the end of the season?
1: Yeah, I don't... Assuming Nagelsmann takes over, um, I, don't, I don't think putting him in charge now would be a good idea because he has no time to, to, to prepare, mm-hmm. no time to support the squad. Um, It would be kind of shooting yourself in the foot because he would be bound to have a difficult couple of weeks. And that's already going to build up a psychological stress going into next season. And the whole media, like pressure going into next season, whereas because you have nothing to play, let's be realistic. They're not, they're probably coming back to me, but I don't think they're going to beat Real Madrid. And, in the in the Premier League, I don't. There's nothing to play for, really. Mm. Um, so it becomes a question of why bother. And I know Chelsea, big club, you need results. It, but realistically, long term, and I think it's time they need to look at the long term. They looked at the short term for the whole season, and it's not worked out. I think maybe you sacrifice the next couple of months and you appoint them in the summer. I think that has to be the go to because I just. As good as he is, I don't think any manager could come in and do a job with 31 players because of mm-hmm. everything we spoke of. Going into next season, if if they have a decent summer and and I mean signing absolutely any nobody, maybe, maybe <laughs> a, decent, a
0: decent summer would be offloading a lot of yeah. players rather
1: than signing uh, offloading well. at least six players, yeah, uh, six players. And assuming they have a decent tr- or summer and everything, I think Nagosman will be dangerously good in the Premier League. I think Chelsea are bound to, to be he could turn Chelsea into a top, top club. I think the whole the, at Bayern there was a whole lot of problems off the pitch because he had he liked to do things a certain way. Mm-hmm. He liked a, his own methods. And I think Bayern is a club where the the it comes as very top down and it's very clear cut organization. And I think there was a lot of conflict there. I think similar to Ten Hag at United, I think if you give him the freedom hmm. he's he's I think he's one of the most promising managers in the world. I think if you give him the ch- the chance in the long term, I think he's gonna he's gonna do build a very nice project. Tactically, I think it'll be fascinating to watch Nagelsmann. I think at Bayern so far or throughout his career, he's proven that if anything, he plays he can play everything. He's a tactician. He knows how to hmm. whether that is positional play. Minimal width, um, every fluid, rigid. Everything that he's displayed at Bayern and Leipzig, he's proven to be able to do a lot of things. And it's not like it's not like Potter just where he's trying the things and it's not a different. workout. Mm-hmm. it's not really worked out at Bayern. They've worked out most of the time. I think he's lost like one or two games each time he's tried something new, but he's won the majority of games. I think that flexibility in the sense that he can do a lot of different things. Whether that is building with four at the back, three at the back, three one, three two, it will suit Chelsea and the players they have, and he's going to be able to find the solutions that maybe Potter didn't find.
0: I think we find it less so at Bayern, during his time at Bar Munich, the flexibility. But when he was at Hoffenheim and then RB Leipzig, there was a mm-hmm. lot of flexibility in terms yeah. of, like, kind of in a similar way that there was with Graham Potter at, at, at yeah. Yeah. Brighton, of course, and you know at Bar Munich that was. It was more rigid because they had better players. They didn't really need to right. succumb to the opposition because they had the best team in the country by yeah. Barnum. I mean, it there was, was there was a
1: quote for him saying that. Um, I like to, I'm paraphrasing here, but I like to adapt to the opponent and have different structures. And at Bayern, they just don't. They I hear they're not really familiar with that. And mm-hmm. there you go.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's I suppose it's a difference of philosophies. Um, but in my mind, if you put a manager in charge, I think you kind of you let them you let them spill their belief system on the team because i think otherwise why are they in charge and you don't get a mandarin to change how he thinks i think that's silly um so yeah i think it's it would be an interesting appointment and i do fully agree with you that putting him in charge now is dangerous because he wouldn't have time to implement this the, the style he wants and the way he wants it seems to be fluid and if you look at a quote from I can't remember what interview it was. It was Thomas Tuchel. He did an interview with. It was either Rio Ferdinand or uh, Glenn Hoddle with that horrendous interview with Glenn Hoddle, where Glenn Hoddle spoke over him the entire time. I think it might have been Rio Ferdinand. Rio said something about when he came into the club. Force did he, you know, that force game against Wolves. They were pretty good. Did they finished goalless? And he said, "Did they play how you wanted them to play?" And he said, "Well, when I came in, I couldn't do that straight away. I needed to put a structure in place for the time being." So he mm-hmm. came in, it was uh, a 3 4 2 1, if you want to call it. And that's kind of what they stuck with for the yeah. rest of the season. And they won the Champions League with it, of course, because it worked out so well. But it wasn't his immediate plan to do that. He came yeah. in and just did it because he knew he didn't have time to implement his philosophy. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that Tuchel's a little bit more able to do that, a little because he does have a little bit more of a rigid, conservative mindset than a Potter or an Nagelsmann or as a yeah. And Agusman would try and come in, and it, it, would, it would be a disaster pretty quickly. Um, especially now with the, the the whole situation with the squad so I agree yeah. with you I think yeah I think leaving it till the end of the season Oh, realistically I don't mean to disrespect from the Chelsea realistically they probably won't win the Champions League this season so if you want to leave it to Bruno at the end of the season they're not going to get European football anyway leave it to Bruno uh, Bruno Salto, of course, is the interim at the moment. He took charge of, as of recording, the, the goal goalless draw with Liverpool last night, where again the same problems arose that they just couldn't finish. Liverpool had an extra of like 0. 0.34 or something. Chelsea's just like 1.8. It's so like, yeah. just couldn't finish. Um, is-
1: Chelsea-Liverpool game
0: that, boring. <laughs> it was just awful. I mean, what a Anfield was better on even though that wasn't great. Um, Kyle, before we wrap up, is there... Another name you want to throw into the mix that you think could do a decent job at Chelsea, like a more experienced manager, I mean, when you talk about experience, it's kind of limited names, unless you want to bring Jose back for a time or time or Ancelotti for a second. Is there a name that kind of stands out where you go, I actually think this person would be a good fit?
1: Uh, Fernando Denise. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I think... You would love that. I, that yeah, that's your heaven. It's yeah, your dream. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, I think you can't, I don't think it would be a good, I don't think I need to say this, but I don't think it would be a good idea to go on the route of Ponte Mourinho Um, mm-hmm. those experienced ones. I don't think it will be sustainable in the long run. I think, it's difficult. There, there aren't many managers um that you can look at, I think Nagelsmann is the obvious one, and I think the, the situation with Bayern doing, a, uh, doing what they did at a similar time just kind of throws them in, in your favour, and I think you have to go for them. Otherwise, I I can't I I know Pochettino is always speculated with everyone. I think he could be good, but I mean, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. If you, I I don't see Pochettino, I, I do want to say he's a gamble. And because while well, he built a really nice project at struggled at PSG, has he cemented himself as a as a? Um, elite manager in the sense that he's going to be able to compete with Liverpool and Chelsea or Liverpool and, and Man City, or not Liverpool anymore, but Man City and Arsenal. Now. Um, yeah, so that technically that would be a gamble because you don't really. Whereas, like, if you're going to gamble, why not go Niagara's man? I don't see why. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but other than that, I'm not, I don't, I can't, I, I suppose that there is Luis Enrique. That is true. He, well, he was a name I was going to bring up, but just, just quick before we do, I, I. Just touching on Poch, I think the difference with Poch is obviously with Nagsman. I he has Premier League experience, of course, being with happened in Spurs. But the problem is, there seems to be, and this is just, of course, my opinion, there seems to be a lot of chat that he's an elite coach. Um, I, for myself, don't put Pochettino into the elite class of managers because... No,
1: he's not. No, he's yeah,
0: not. I, I put him in the same kind of class as a... No, I don't want to say Graham Potter, obviously, because I I, I feel like, respectfully to Potter. I feel it's a bit disrespectful to Pochettino because Pochettino's a Champions League finalist. He was still got Spurs consecutively in the top four, and of course won the league he's, with the
1: He's in between yeah.
0: Potter and the likes of. You sort of like rank two. Potter would say rank yeah. three, and then you have like your Guardiola's, your clubs are yeah. rank one. It's kind of yeah. For me, they're elite managers. I would say Poch maybe in the same. Class right now, as oh, do I say this? Maybe i leave it. Ten Hag is that fair because no, uh, do you not think? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, Ten Hag- I think
0: Ten Hag can easily be number one easily. It's so sort difficult, of. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I, I know I'm putting myself out there. I'm a Manchester United fan, by the way, so I'm gonna get a he for that uh, for listeners. I expect the tweet or two, but uh, I, I, I think, I think, we think- because we have we have very
1: current bias about managers of what's going on now. Yeah. And and we have to take a step back in Ten Hag as great as he has been at Man Mm -hmm. united and as good as the future looks. Can you classify him as an elite manager with the likes of Klopp and Guardiola? I don't think he's a That's why I think he's ranked two
0: now. I think he's with Poch in that kind of... have to
1: consider what they've done in the past
0: as well. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. Uh, And then Luis Enrique, obviously, I suppose, is an elite manager. I mean, Champions League winner, I suppose, you, you kind of,
1: yeah, to get think, put in think,
0: that bracket. We're a treble winner as well. Yeah. And do you think? think I, I know you're a kind of. Be careful what I say here. I know you're kind of.
1: not he has a, not. I a, I not mean, against.
0: Yeah. 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 The, the Spain set. I mean, that I was a clear cup
1: possession and Um. I do. I I think it could work out. I mean, there's no Pep is doing what he does, in, in the Premier League. I think it could certainly work out, and they have the players to do that. I think. Luis Enrique, I mean, do I say this? He's not managed in the Premier league. I don't know how much that actually counts. I don't think that maybe mm. doesn't count for anything. Um, but – Well, just in I terms think, of style. Think he, could, do you- he could be a successful one. I think the style could be successful because you, you've had a Pep come in. You've had Arteta come in. And it's, it's, they're sort of drinking, like, from the same fountain. And, and I think,
0: mm. yeah,
1: the players are more than good enough to do um, what he wants to
0: do. I think one thing, if Enrique comes, he's going to learn pretty quickly you have to be slightly more flexible. Because... You can argue that But even nuclear Spain team, I think he massively underperformed with Spain, in my own opinion. Because yeah. you even that Morocco game, and Rodri can come out and do all the quotes he wants for his style to play, <laughs> and he can talk whatever nonsense he wants. Spain massively underperformed. They were so just rigid in the way they came about playing and uh, throughout that tournament. After the 7-0 win against Costa Rica, they were yeah. pretty poor, yeah. I would argue, yeah. you know, throughout the rest of the tournament. And then they it was the, the style, especially that Morocco game, it was just the same thing over and over again. Throughout 120 minutes, they create an XG of like one, which is yeah. not not good for the players they had in that team. Yeah. Yeah. you know. So I think when he comes to England, he would need to be more rigid because even you see what Pep, Pep had to learn pretty quickly. Yeah. That fourth season at Manchester City, when he came I mean, in and wanted to play mm-hmm. that style, didn't work out for him.
1: Yeah, but now, now the problem is the Premier League is a hundred times harder than when Pep came in because, yeah. look at who's bottom of the league and how much the players they have. Like, if you told me, like a, a year ago, that Pacquiao would be for like a relegation fighting team, I'd be like, no way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just I mean, the Premier League is very difficult. And I think the whole chat about we dominated games, we just kind of put them away is not going
0: to cut it in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. No, I fully agree, and even like. Talking about like teams like Bournemouth having like Argentine internationals. That blows me away. It's like been, ten years ago it was unheard of the Premier League, and now it's just not on forest, not even forest, They players they have Danilo, the who's yeah, the most yeah. exciting Brazilian prospects. Yeah. Unbelievable. So it's interesting. Kyle, thank you so much for giving me your time. I'm gonna give you the opportunity now to plug your magazine piece, actually, because I've just read it yesterday, I believe. Because I read I read a couple of pieces from the magazine. I read it yesterday. It's a really good piece. So plug it there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um it was about time I just did something specific to, to functional play. Um this the piece basically looks at um space as a concept and functional play. And um big shout out to Jamie Hamilton. I used a lot of his pieces as a kind of influence, but the piece just breaks down how space is conceptualized and viewed in our relational mindset uh rather than a positional one. Um so um, I won't go too much into it, but it's it's very interesting and it, it gives a better idea as to how relation team, relational teams think and and function and and yeah and I think it's it's one of the hottest topics right now and I think the piece just helps provide a little bit more clarity into to how Napoli influence it and some of these teams approach possession. Um, you can find it on my Twitter. Um, yep.
0: Awesome, and you can also find it on the TFA website. To buy the magazine, it's only five ninety nine, which is the same price as a pint in this day and age. So please, please go get the magazine. There's some absolutely, genuinely some excellent content. I spoke to Chris, the owner, the founder of TFA. I spoke to Jamie Brackpool as well, who is the Got designs the magazine and I said this is the best magazine we've put out in a long, long time. I think it's an amazing okay. magazine. It like without doubt the pieces in it are unbelievable. It's so diverse. I mean, the I, one about La Paza there's yeah, unbelievable. There. Beth wrote a piece on La uh, La Pauza, and you have like, uh, uh, I Bryant, of course, friend of the podcast too, always on. He wrote a piece looking at Rafael Benitez as the next club, and then he wrote about Leicester City. And I think right now he's the favorite for the Leicester job. It's unbelievable. And, and 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 um. Who wrote about Zenadek Zeman? He's one of my favorite managers of all time. Finton is unbelievable. Yeah. He wrote and he was in analysis from back in like the 90s when he was with Roman. So oh, yeah. so good. I mean, again, yeah. like crazy. Seriously, I'm not just of course I'm gonna be biased, but it's yeah. an amazing magazine. So please yeah. do go and check it out. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. Make sure to tune in on Tuesday for another regular episode of the TFA Scouted Podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy also make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers friends and family as it really helps us to grow thank you all for listening and goodbye for now